Section 12. Jezebels. Every night when I go to bed, I think in the morning I will wake up in my own house and things will be back the way they were. It hasn't happened this morning either. I put on my clothes, summer clothes, it's still summer. It seems to have stopped at summer. July, it's breathless days and sauna nights, hard to sleep. I make a point of keeping track. I should scratch marks on the wall, one for each day of the week, and run a line through them when we have seven. But what would be the use? This isn't a jail sentence. There's no time here that can be done and finished. Hello, I'm Shane, and this is The Writer's Apprentice, a podcast where we learn by reading the works of smart authors. For the majority of the 2010s, I worked for a company called Altmetric as a software developer. What they do is try to find places online where scholarly articles are being talked about. They do this in a wide range of places, but one of the places they look are in the white papers written by governments, think tanks, and charitable institutions. So, if the World Bank are writing an article about how more women are needed in STEM in certain parts of Latin America, and they happen to base some of their policy on the findings of the piece of scholarly work, then the authors of that scholarly work would probably be excited to know that they've made a difference in the world by helping the World Bank come to a decision. Those researchers can take that evidence of the usefulness of their work, go to their supervisor, and seek more funding to continue their research. This isn't meant to be a pitch for Altmetric, but I'll just finish that part off quickly. Without Altmetric, the researchers would have no idea their work was mentioned. There's no obligation to tell someone that that's happened, and we often hear from researchers surprised by how far and wide their work is being used. The software we write at Altmetric is only able to find those mentions because the policy documents wouldn't be taken seriously unless they cite their sources. This document is offering a narrative, even though it's non-fiction, which hopes to persuade the Latin American governments to start investing in women. Without citing its sources, the more cynical of those governments would shrug the recommendation off as woke culture aspiring out of control, a narrative that they don't particularly care for. Instead, the World Bank has to give evidence, giving their recommendation weight, It does this in a standardised way. At the back of a policy document, it lists the dozens of research papers that have been compiled to form its argument. The structure of these citations is prescriptive enough that Ometric can write software to parse them out, understand what they are, and figure out which researchers ought to be excited. For whatever reason though, as a society, we don't hold our news to such high standards. News stories are another place that Ometric looks for the work of a researcher being mentioned. Research often inspires news articles, and it's amongst the highlights of a researcher's career to be covered by one. The software for identifying which research paper is being covered is more complex though, since it's rare for a news broadcaster to refer to the paper they're talking about in a standardised way. Fortunately, there is usually some effort to mention the journal of the paper, even if the researcher or paper title aren't mentioned. We'll find less reliable news services completely omitting references to the source, when they want to draw their own conclusions about the findings. Certain red titles of the world are still talking about scientific documents, but when it's difficult for the reader to track down to verify them, their conclusions might be far afield from the researcher's own. Another way news stories can give authority to what they're saying is by quoting someone. They do this like it's done everywhere, by putting quotation marks around it and then attributing it to whoever said it. In a journalism and mass communication paper from 1998, S.S. Sunder carried out an experiment on around 50 people. They were shown three articles, which contained direct quotes from people of interest to the story, and three articles about the same stories, but this time without the direct quotes. 
The respondents found all of the stories to be of a similar level of interest or newsworthiness, but when someone was directly quoted, they felt it added more credibility to the story. They were no longer listening to the musing of a journalist, but the factual statements. Before I started doing research for this piece, my assumption was that quotes in news stories would have to be exactly what's said by the subject. Thinking a little bit more about this though, I can see that that can't be true, unless every person ever interviewed spoke without the ums or ahs that we're used to, or without having to correct a slip of the tongue. Journalists must take these liberties all the time. I've not been able to find any journalistic bodies giving recommendations on this, though that could be down to my bad googling. What I did find was a number of people in the writing stack exchange answering this question. They all advised chopping and changing the words a person said to remove any confusion, but never to change the meaning of what they're saying. In fact, not doing so might be seen as an unfair attack on the person being quoted. A verbatim quote full of filler words and repetition could sound stupid on paper, but naturally out loud. One example of this butchering was given by Jay on the Stack Exchange question. In an American libel case, Mason v. The New Yorker, Mason told the court that he had been misquoted so badly that his reputation had been damaged. The original transcript of the interview had him saying, Freud's library alone is priceless in terms of what it contains. All his books with his annotations in them, the Schruber case annotated, that kind of thing, it's fascinating. The journalist, knowing the kinds of books Freud's house would have been full of, and the kinds of annotations he'd keep in them, quoted Mason as saying instead, Freud's house would have been a centre of scholarship, but it would also have been a place of sex, women and fun. Amazingly, to me at least, the judge sided with the New Yorker, suggesting that although the words were entirely different from what was actually said, it was obvious what Mason was really saying, and the quote didn't misinterpret that. In writing, it's rare you'll see characters stumble over words as much as you'd expect in typical conversation. Ums and ahs are stripped, and yet the narrator rarely loses their confidence for doing this. When these filler words are left behind, it's almost always to discredit the person talking, showing that they're nervous, lying, or simply stupid. Excessive stammering can be used as a plot device, an obstacle the character has to overcome. Maybe they have a speech to the nation coming up, or they're scared they'll mess up their wedding vows. Being misunderstood is such a frustrating part of life, it's easy to build sympathy around it. Then we can all feel happy for the afflicted when they successfully fight their way through it. In The Philosopher's Stone, the device was used to make us lower our guard around Quirrell. The journalist, despite being the second-hand source of information, even in the factual world, becomes the authority of what happened. White papers from institutions do their best to associate what they're saying with some evidence and gain authority from that. Meanwhile, journalists are often given the same amount of respect, despite having much more leeway in what they say and how they say it. This is no different from narrators in stories. In first-person stories especially, like The Handmaid's Tale, we only ever hear quotations which have been affected by the editing, misunderstanding and biases of the narrator. We saw this a number of chapters ago, when Ofklin tries the password out and Offred. She likely described to us the tone and insightful glance all wrong in that scene. Where Offred made us think, as she thought, it was only a harmless conversation, Offred would have had to have summoned a heap of bravery to mention this passphrase to a potential spy, as her heart quickened and a slight tremor appeared in her voice. Offred didn't notice any of that. Atwood goes out of her way to make sure we know we're not getting a real view of these conversations by doing something which is very obvious the first time someone speaks in the book. 
she completely neglects speech marks. The authority we just talked about, that a storyteller or a journalist gains from intentionally quoting someone, is removed. It's not that we're being led to believe that the narrator is lying to us, at least not in a gone girl sort of way where details are being hidden from us. Though as readers, we do need to pay attention to what offered might be missing. We're so accustomed to seeing speech in a particular way, that when that trend is booked, it wrenches us out of the story, tossing aside our suspension of disbelief for a moment, and forces us to pay attention to what's happening. Should we trust this account? This is an example of metafiction, where the very format of the story adds to it. House of Leaves, by Danny Lewiski, pushes aspects of metafiction as far as they can go, by taking every opportunity it can to use the form, like marginalia and footnotes, to remind you that you're reading a book edited by a crazy person that was originally written by an even crazier elderly man. In House of Leaves, the reader is never supposed to forget the state of mind of any of the numerous authors. The unusual design choices in the book, like spontaneously switching to a two-column layout, or printing the page upside down, made me feel uncomfortable just looking at the page. It wasn't a mistake of Danny Lewiski, it was the point. That was exactly what he was trying to do. So maybe these failures of syntax, the inability to tell a story the way we expect reliably, show Offred's failing sanity. It might also be a technique used to show her failing memory. Days merge into each other as seasons either stand still or pass without noticing. There are key memories she struggles to bring to her mind after having created so many false memories for herself. When she quotes her mother, it's difficult to remember if it's a comforting invention or a genuine moment. I wanted to bring up the odd use of punctuation in this essay because these chapters are where I noticed them actually being used again. The quotation marks have returned for some things. Is this showing us that nearer to the end, Offred's memory is becoming clearer? Are we being told that her story is written retrospectively? After all, where would she have found the tools to record her thoughts from the confines of her barren room? Whatever the reason, I find it particularly interesting to see in a successful book. There's a rule, which every other book stands by closely, that you stick words someone says in quotes, and Atwood decided not to follow it, allowing her to make a point at the same time. The breach in the rule isn't just because she can, but because it adds something to the story. I love it whenever an author remembers that we're holding a book, and that they can use a physical aspect of that book to add to the story. Ironically, as we later learn that Offred's story is found on tapes, This is a feature that's lost on the audiobooks, where the narrator hides the ambiguity introduced by the lack of punctuation. This is absolutely a case of needing to understand the rules before you can break them. I'm certain that if I decided to stop using paragraphs in an overly ambitious attempt to show, like, the lack of breathing room a character has in a situation, that it would backfire by reducing the readability of the text. Whilst this is a cool technique using some of my favourite books, I mentioned House of Leaves already, but there's also S by J.J. Abrams and Doug Dost. It definitely makes them harder to read. So, with that said, I think that metafiction and playing with form are techniques that I'll stay away from for the time being. Hey everyone, it's Shane. Uh, Welcome to the end of the podcast. Uh, There are a bunch more people than I expected listening to the podcast, so I'd like to say welcome to everyone that's joined recently. I noticed there was an uptick in later episodes. Um, but you can always go back and uh, look at the older ones. They're all available and they all should be in your feed. So if you were eager to to complete the set, uh, feel free to jump back. 
they you can listen to them out of order. It doesn't matter. The writing podcast recommendation this week isn't so much about good writing, but comedically horrible writing. So I want to recommend My Dad Wrote a Porno, which is a hilarious podcast where this gentleman, the son of the the dad, has stumbled across a book that his father has written, which is incredibly erotic, and he reads it with a couple of other friends. The book isn't written so well, um, but it's hilarious watching this guy cringe his way through it. If you're looking to uh, have a good laugh and maybe feel a bit better about whatever you're currently writing, go pick up that podcast. That was quite funny. Okay, that is everything for this week. Do have a good day, and I'll speak to you soon.